calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 23, Parasitology. Martin Brubaker was no more. Wednesday, less than three full days since he'd been shot to death, and all that remained was a pitted black skeleton missing the legs from the knees down. That and the delicate gossamer mold that now grew in little patches, not only on the skeleton and on the table, but in spots all over the BSL-4 tent. Even Brubaker's talon hand had finally relaxed. It lay on the table, finger bones crumbling into a jumbled pile. Cameras inside the tent provided pictures, both live and still, that let Margaret watch the corpse's final degenerative state. She hadn't felt such a black sense of foreboding since her childhood, during the ever-so-deadly pissing contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mutually assured destruction, the promise that any conflict could rapidly escalate into full-blown nuclear war. Bang. Dead. Done. She'd only been a young girl, but more than smart enough to grasp the potential disaster. It was funny, really, that back then, her parents had thought she understood because of her high intelligence, as if only a gifted child could comprehend the imminent threat of nuclear war. But as they had in years before and had in years since, probably always would, adults mistake children's innocence for ignorance. Margaret knew exactly what was going on, and so did most of her classmates. They knew the communists were something to fear, something more tangible than the thing under the bed. They knew Manhattan, their home, would be among the first places destroyed. Why do people think the end of the world is such a difficult concept for a child to understand? Much of childhood is spent in fear of the unknown, in fear of creeping shadows and lurking monsters and things that promise a long, ugly, and painful death. A nuclear war was just one more boogeyman that threatened to take them all away. Only this boogeyman also scared her parents and all the other grown-ups, and the children tuned into that frequency of fear as surely as they tuned into Bugs Bunny. You could run from a monster. You could dodge the boogeyman. But the nuclear war was out there and out of their hands. It might come at any moment. Maybe when she was on the playground at recess. Maybe when she sat down to dinner. Maybe after she went to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That hadn't just been an abstract prayer in those days. 
it had been a possibility, as real as the sunset. She remembered living in constant fear of that unknown. Sure, she played, went to school, laughed, and carried on with her friends, but the threat was always there. Each thready white contrail in the sky was a potential first finger of doom. And the game would be played out, win or lose, without her able to do anything about it. She tried to tell herself that this wasn't the same thing. She was on the forefront of this potential holocaust, after all. She was the front line of defense. This wasn't out of her control, but rather, quite literally, resting squarely in her hands. For some reason, however, that rational, adult knowledge couldn't banish the little girl's fear that there was nothing she could do to affect this game's outcome. She wondered how Amos could ignore that feeling, or if he even felt it at all. He hummed the theme song to Hawaii Five-O for the millionth time, yet Margaret was too tired to complain. She sipped at her coffee. She'd down pots of the stuff, hoping it would stimulate her, yet nothing seemed to cut through her lethargy. It felt good to breathe normal air, air not filtered by the biosuit. She wanted to sleep, or at least stretch out and relax, but there really wasn't time. They needed to finish up the work, incinerate the decomposed remains, and get the hell out of that hospital. Amos turned to her. His hair was askew, his clothes wrinkled, yet his eyes were alive with excitement. This really is quite amazing, Margaret. Think about it. This is a human parasite of unparalleled complexity. There's no question in my mind that this creature is perfectly suited to its human host. Margaret stared at the wall, her words quiet, barely audible. I hate to paraphrase a tired old cliché, but it's almost too perfect. What do you mean? Like you said, the creature's ideally suited. It's like a hand in a glove. But think about it, Amos. Think of current technology levels. This creature is miles above that. It would be like the Russians suddenly landing on the moon while the Wright brothers were still struggling at Kitty Hawk. It's amazing, sure, but we can't ignore the fact that it's right here in front of us. This is no time for sensitive American egos. There's some genius out there that's so far beyond us we can't even comprehend it. What if there is no genius? What are you talking about? Of course there's a genius. How else could this thing have been created? She turned to look at him, her skin almost gray, fatigue covering her face like a call. What if it's not created? What if it's natural? Oh, come on, Margaret. I know you're tired, but you're not thinking straight. If this is natural, how could we have never seen it before? A human parasite of such size and virulence, and there isn't one documented case before this year? That doesn't make sense. For this thing to be so closely matched to human host would constitute millions of years of coevolution, yet we've never seen anything like this in any animal, let alone primates or humans. I'm sure there's many, many things we haven't seen, but I just can't accept that someone created this thing. It's just too complex, too advanced. Regardless of what scare tactic media likes to spout, American science is state-of-the-art. Who's more advanced? The Chinese? Japan? Singapore? Sure, maybe some countries are starting to get an edge on us, but an edge is one thing, and an exponential shift is another. If we can't create something that's even close to this, I find it hard to believe that anyone else could. That's not ego. That's just the facts. Amos seemed annoyed by her persistence. It's highly improbable that this affliction has existed but has never been documented. Sure, there are species as yet undiscovered, I grant you that, but there's a difference between some unknown microscopic creature and this. There is nothing like this. I can't even think of a tribal myth or a folktale that resembles this. So if this is natural, where in the blue blazes did it come from? Margaret shrugged. You've got me. Maybe some kind of dormancy. 
This may have been a known quantity in prehistoric times, and something caused it to die out. But it didn't die out all the way. Somehow, it stayed dormant for thousands of years until something caused this outbreak. There are orchid seeds that can stay dormant for 2,500 years, for example. Your theory sounds about as far-fetched as a Loch Ness monster. Well, what about the coelacanth? People thought it was extinct for 70 million years until a fisherman caught one in 1938. Just because someone hasn't seen it doesn't mean it isn't there, Amos. Right. And this thing happened to remain dormant for hundreds of years in areas of extreme population density? It would be one thing to find this deep in the Congo jungle, but quite another to find it in Detroit. This isn't AIDS where people just die. These are defined triangular growths. In the communication age, something like this doesn't go unreported. Pardon my brusqueness, but you'll have to find another theory. Margaret nodded absently. Amos was right. The concept of a dormant human parasite didn't wash. Whatever these things were, they were new. Amos changed the subject. Have Murray's men found any connection among the victims? No, nothing yet. They've traced the travel of all the victims and anyone the victims came in contact with. There's no connection. Most of the victims hadn't traveled anywhere. The only link is that Judy Washington and Gary Leland, the two Detroit cases, happened within one week of each other and happened at the same retirement home. They checked that place out with a fine-tooth comb. No one else shows any signs of infection. They've run tests on the water, the food, the air, nothing out of the ordinary, although we're still not sure what to look for, so that doesn't rule anything out. The Dutalino cases were weeks apart, but within a few blocks of each other physically. There seems to be some proximity effect. The transmission vector is unknown, but Murray still thinks there's a terrorist out there deliberately infecting random people. Well, that fits with our observations. I'm more and more convinced that Brubaker and the others may have been contaminated but weren't contagious. We found nothing on him indicative of eggs, an embryonic form, or anything else that could be responsible for new parasites. Besides, Dew hasn't shown any symptoms, nor has anyone else who came in contact with Brubaker's body. Margaret rubbed her eyes. God, she needed a nap. Shit, what she needed was a week in Bora Bora with a sleek cabana boy named Marco catering to her every need. But she didn't have Bora Bora. She had Toledo, Ohio. And she didn't have a cabana boy named Marco. She had a gossamer mold-covered, pitted black skeleton, formerly known as Martin Brubaker. Chapter 24. The Bathroom Floor The genetic blueprint recognized when the shells reached the proper thickness. Energies then turn to the body's growth. Cells split again and again and again, a non-stop engine of creation. Internal organs began to take shape, but they wouldn't fully develop until later. Because the host still provided all food and warmth, most of the internal organs could wait. Right now, the most important needs were the tendrils, the tails, and the brain. The brain developed rapidly, but remained a long way from forming anything that resembled an intelligent thought. The tendrils, however, were of a relatively simple design. They grew like wildfire, branching out in all directions, spreading into the host. The tendrils sought out the host's nerve cells, intertwining with the dendrites like fingered hands clasping tightly together. Starting slowly, almost tentatively, the organisms released complex chemical compounds called neurotransmitters, into the synaptic cleft, the space between the tendrils and the dendrites. Each neurotransmitter was part of a signal, a message. They slid into the axon's receptor sites, just like a key into a lock, 
causing that nerve cell to generate its own neurotransmitters with its own specific message. As in the host's normal sensory process, the action produced an electrochemical chain reaction. The message is repeated through the nervous system until they reach the host's brain. The process, from the time the message fires until it finally reaches the brain, takes less than one one-thousandth of a second. Although they had yet to achieve conscious thought, at a primitive level, the organisms inside Perry knew they had been attacked. They instinctively triggered an immediate growth process. The tail began a phase change of its own. Specialized cells grew, ensuring the organisms would remain anchored in their environment long enough to fully develop. The six remaining organisms grew, rapidly and unimpeded, as the host lay passed out on his bathroom floor. The linoleum felt nice and cool on Perry's face. He didn't really want to try to sit up. As long as he lay still, the pain was only mildly intolerable. When was the last time he'd been knocked out? Eight years ago? No, it was nine, when his dad had hit him in the back of the head with a full bottle of wild turkey whiskey. He'd wound up with nine stitches in his head. Had it hurt this bad after dad hit him with the bottle? It was so long ago and it seemed like nothing compared to the dull waves of pain that now washed through his head. He tried to sit up, which only made it worse. It was like a tequila hangover times ten. He felt sick to his stomach. Every little move towards an upright position shot more thick blasts of pain through his skull. He felt a puke coming on, working its way around his lukewarm, queasy stomach. He reached up and gingerly touched his abused forehead. At least he wasn't bleeding. He felt a pronounced bump a half-golf ball embedded in his skull. He realized his pants were around his ankles, which added to the difficulty of sitting up. This was going to be a wonderful story to tell at parties, just as soon as he remembered what that story was. He slowly rolled to his back and pulled up his jeans. The room looked fuzzy and out of focus. Perry grabbed the toilet seat. It wobbled weirdly as he used it to pull himself up. The seat was cracked in two at the oval's front edge. Must have done that with his head. His stomach churned once, twice, then rebelled. Perry leaned forward and vomited into the toilet, spilling a large quantity of bile into the water, a guttural grunt echoing in the ceramic bowl. His clenched stomach relaxed its grip, allowing him to breathe, but the air froze in his throat as shearing pain cut through his head. His eyes shut tight. He groaned weakly against the rhythmic pounding of his skull. The pain immobilized him as assuredly as a straitjacket. He couldn't even get to his feet to find a dozen or so excedrin. Somewhere in his head, he remembered hearing that people puke when they get a concussion. He wondered how boxers, or even pro quarterbacks, put up with it. This feeling wasn't worth any amount of money. Another wave of nausea slammed into his stomach, pushing more bile into the cloudy bowl. The acrid odor of vomit filled the bathroom. The smell made him even more nauseous, which made his head hurt more, which made him feel like puking yet again. It was one of those vicious circles that make even non-religious people ask God what had they done to deserve such trauma. Must have been a child molester in a previous life, he muttered to himself. That or maybe Genghis Khan. A third wave of nausea hit him. There was nothing left to vomit, but his stomach didn't care. It clenched with explosion-violent fury that doubled him over, pushing his head almost into the toilet bowl. His face scrunched as tight as his clamped diaphragm. His stomach refused to relax for a full five seconds, preventing him from drawing a breath. 
When it finally relaxed and air filled his lungs, he opened his watering eyes just in time for the pain to slam into his head like a 70-mile-per-hour semi-truck squashing a baby raccoon. He saw a few black spots, then his face slid back onto the cool linoleum. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 25. Delusional Parasitosis. More Gillen's disease. Margaret stared in disbelief at the CDC report. The disease that wasn't a disease at all but believed by the majority of the healthcare community to be a, quote, delusional parasitosis, end quote. Delusional. Get a load of that. Seems the vast majority of cases are, Amos said. Symptoms range from feelings of biting or stinging to things crawling under the skin. Some cases have the strange fibers, and most involve some form of mental condition. Depression, acute onset of ADHD, bipolar disorder, and take a guess at the last three. Paranoia, psychosis, and psychopathy? Well, you're just racking up the cigars these days, Margot. Margaret, Amos, and Clarence Otto waited in the hospital director's office, a plaque-lined room with warm wood paneling and four well-groomed potted ficus trees. The director had been asked to leave by the persuasive agent Otto, who apologized for the intrusion while at the same time leaving no possible way for the director to say no. Margaret thought Otto was a born salesman, a guy who could make you do whatever he wanted while making you think it was your idea the whole time. Margaret and Amos sat on a leather couch, both looking at pages of reports spread out on a coffee table. Otto had taken the director's chair behind the ornate wooden desk. He spun the chair in slow circles and seemed to relish the implied authority of the spot, smiling like a little kid playing grown-up boss. Murray was on his way, 
they would give him their report face to face. Now I know I'm the dummy of the bunch, Otto said, so pardon me for asking, but you have a CDC report. What you're saying is the stuff you guys have been studying for the past few days, that turns out to be a known factor? Amos shook his head. No, not even close. This Morgellons thing. People don't know if it's real or kind of a group delusion. It took years of pressure from victims groups to force the CDC to at least pretend to take it seriously. The CDC created a task force, but so far they don't even have a clear case definition of what Morgellons is. Most of the cases actually do turn out to be delusional parasitosis. People think they're infected with something, organisms that can only be observed by the patient. In fact, the term Morgellons has been around for just a few years, and since it started to get publicity, more and more people report the symptoms. Which means it's spreading. Not necessarily. It could mean that, or it could mean that once unstable people hear about the disease, their minds decide that's what they have. They invent the symptoms in their own brain, hence the delusional part. Otto spun in the director's chair, three full circles as he spoke. So the more people that claim to have this disease, the more publicity it gets. Then the more people hear about it, and then the more people think they have it. A full circle of nuttiness. God damn Murray, Margaret said. He's right about keeping this quiet. This is exactly what he said would happen if word got out. And that's just for this itchy thing, the bugs under the skin thing. Just imagine what the response is going to be like if people see pictures of triangles. Or get wind of grannies slicing up their kids, then playing all Scarface with the cops, Otto said. Psycho grandmamas would definitely upset Mr. and Mrs. Average American. Amos nodded. Murray does have a point, I suppose. There were a dozen more Gellins cases five years ago. Now there are over 1,500 reported in all 50 states in Europe. So why haven't we heard more about the triangles? We know this isn't delusional. We've seen the little buggers, and we've seen the chemical imbalances in Brubaker's brain. This is real, Amos. Because most of the cases are delusional, but not all. It's the fibers, Margaret. There are documented cases with blue, red, black, and white fibers that are made up of cellulose. There have been three instances where doctors had the fibers analyzed over the past four years, and guess what? They had the exact chemical composition as Brubaker's. Exact, as in down to the molecule. And you think it's your fizzles? Amos smiled. Yeah, the fizzles. We have the triangle cases we've seen in the past few weeks. Let's assume those are cases where the organism made it to the larval stage. However, this Morgellons research indicated that there have been multiple cases over several years where we see the fibers, where we see fizzles. It's possible there were full-blown larval infections before the last few weeks, sure, but if they existed, no one has heard about them. Agent Otto whipped himself in circles. He seemed to be trying to see how many spins he could get off one push. So the fibers have been around for a while, but only now are reaching the larval stage? Does that mean they're evolving? Margaret started to speak, a kind of automatic reaction to correct a layman's guess at science, but she stopped. Otto oversimplified it, but his concept was right on the money. Has this task force been mapping the occurrences of the natural fibers? Amos shrugged. I would imagine so, but I'm not sure. We'd have to talk to them. Margaret flipped through the pages. Dr. Frank Chang, he's the project lead. I need to talk to this man, but I don't know if Murray will let me call him. Margaret, may I say something? Otto asked. Sure. He spun in his chair once, then gripped the desk with both hands, smiling the whole time. You seem to let people push you around a lot. You ever notice that? She felt her face turning red. Just because she had a problem, and everyone knew she had a problem, didn't mean Otto had to actually talk about it. That is none of your business, she said. Because it seems to me you're a lot stronger than you think. 
We're dealing with some pretty crazy stuff here, am I right? She nodded. So if you got something you feel we need to do, maybe you should stop being such a pussy. Excuse me? Amos slapped the coffee table. Preach on, Brother Otto! I said, Margaret, stop being such a pussy. I heard what you said. So stop letting Murray tell you what to do. Margaret's jaw dropped. Are you completely deranged? He's the deputy director of the CIA, man. How can I not let him tell me what to do? So he's the deputy director. Do you know what you are? Tell her! Amos screamed. He stood and raised his hands to the sky. Tell the good sister what she is! Yes, Agent Otto. Please tell me what I am. Otto spun twice, then spoke. You are the lead epidemiologist studying a new, unknown disease with horrific implications. Horrific! Amos echoed. You are short-staffed, and you can't get the experts you should have. It's a sin! Amos said. Amos, why don't you just knock it the fuck off? Amos smiled, then picked up a magazine off the coffee table and sat down, pretending to read. Margaret, he put you in charge of this. What will happen if you insist on talking to this chain guy? Do you think Murray is going to bring in someone else to replace you? She started to speak, then stopped. No, Murray wouldn't do that. Not because she was the end-all be-all, but because he wanted to keep this tight as a drum. Murray needed her. So, Otto said as he gave one strong push. He started spinning, speaking one syllable on each revolution, almost as if he'd read her mind. Use what you have. Her anger faded. Agent Clarence Otto was right. Chapter 26. The Poison Pill The seedlings continuously monitored development, fed by data from the roaming readers. At a certain point, the seedlings' checklist determined that the readers' jobs were completed. A chemical signal rolled through the host. The readers went through a phase change. With a simple adjustment, the saw-like jaws dropped off and the balls sealed up tight. Inside the balls, death started to brew. They inflated, filling themselves with a new chemical compound. Herders moved the chemical balls throughout the framework, wedging them here, wedging them there. Where the jaws had been, a crusty cap appeared. The deadly compound ate away at the inside of the cap, but the seedlings flooded the structure with another chemical that added thickness to the cap from the outside. It was a delicate balance, but as long as the seedlings remained alive, kept making the chemical, the poison balls would remain sealed. If the seedlings ceased to function, however, the caps would disintegrate and the vile catalyst inside would spread through the framework, dissolving it, the modified stem cells, and all the cells they had created. Cells would blacken, die, then dissolve, the resulting waste material moving on to poison other cells. The ensuing chain reaction would dissolve every soft tissue it reached. Framework, muscle, skin, organs, everything. To stop this from happening, the seedlings had to survive. But this host had no way of knowing that. Light reflecting off rusty razor wire. Blood smeared on skin and teeth. The strange brown-green of the building material. Those he could bring to life, no problem. But what was the color of a scream? The tone of agony. The shade of hatred. Get Gwen painted. It would have been easier to do it on a computer, with the millions of color combinations and the precious undo function for mistakes, but this had to be done by hand. He had to see the oils on the palette, 
swirling together, colors mixing and blending, two things becoming one. He had to see the paint's sensual cascade across the canvas, soft, curving strokes, gentle touches with just the very tip of the brush. A computer screen couldn't convey pain, not the right way, not with the relief of brush strokes catching the shadows and reflecting the light as you slowly move from one side of the canvas to the other. Besides, when he watched the brushes caress the canvas, when he lost himself in the dance of color and texture, something precious happened. Because when he painted, the voices stopped. They didn't stop, not really. He just couldn't focus on them anymore. Their ceaseless prattling faded away to the sound of ambient conversation at a classy restaurant. The work took over, and other images flashed into his brain. All the faces. All the faces and all the pain. Something connected him to these souls, these doomed souls. Something to do with the triangles, the trees, and the construct. This is the place. So much pain. He wasn't supposed to see these faces. He didn't know how he knew that, but he did. They couldn't see him. He didn't know how he knew that either. So much pain. So much fear. The brush danced across the palette, then onto the canvas, then onto the palette again. He was in the zone, when the brush acted less like a brush shoveling paint from point A to point B, and more like an orchestral conductor's baton, swirling, rising, dipping in time to a song that roared inside Git's brain. So much pain. So much fear. And in the big man, so much rage. The brush dipped into the brown and yellow and white and red. The big man's beard was hard to paint, hard to get the colors right, blonde and red, working around a mouth curled into a snarl. This man had the rage that they feared. For the other faces, Gitz included, there was anger, but not enough. But the big man, he made them afraid. Gitz's vision swirled within the paint. When he hit it right, when he was on, when he was in the zone, All he could see was the paint, from left to right, from top to bottom. It took up all his thoughts, smells, touches, even tastes, and his hearing. They were talking again. They were trying to cut through his focus, trying to tell him to do things. Git stopped painting and blinked. He'd been lost in the painting, inside the painting. But suddenly, it was again just a square piece of canvas inside his room. He stopped because he didn't want to paint anymore. What he wanted to do was get the twenty-two rifle to stop them before it was too late. But those weren't his words. He jammed the brush into the red, brown, yellow, white, and swirled furiously, trying to crawl back inside the painting. He had to stop them, stop his roommates, before it was too late. He held the palette up to his face until his nose dipped in a fresh spot of magenta. His eyes only inches from the horsehair. He watched the brush swirl and swirl and swirl. The intensity destroyed the color. He'd have to do it again. The voices faded away. Soon the work would be complete, and he wouldn't be able to block them out anymore. But it wasn't finished. Not yet. The painting stretched before him, left and right and up and down, until his vision dove deep into the textures and colors, and everything else faded away. 
Chapter 27. Goodbye. I'm sorry, Mr. Phillips, the doctor said. He just slipped away. We thought we had him out of the woods and then he was just gone. Dew stared at the doctor, who looked tired and bedraggled. It wasn't the doctor's fault. The man had done everything possible. Dew still couldn't stop the wave of fury that swept over him, that had him wonder how easy it would be to snap the little doctor's skinny neck. What killed him? It wasn't one particular thing. I think the whole incident was just too much for his body to handle. To be blunt, he should have died back on Monday, but he was strong enough to fight another sixty hours. Because of that, we thought we might be able to save him, but there was just too much damage. I'm very sorry. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go talk to his wife. No, Dew snapped. Then, quietly, No, I'll do it. I was his partner. As you like, Mr. Phillips, the doctor said. I'll be nearby if you need me. The doctor strode away. Dew stared at the floor, gathering his courage. It wasn't the first time he'd lost a partner, and it wasn't the first time he'd had to break the news to a new widow. It never got easier. It was funny how you could get used to killing, but not to death. He wearily looked down the hall. Shamika stared at him, her son Jerome asleep in her lap. Her eyes filled with tears of denial. She knew. Dew still had to tell her, though. The words still had to be said. He walked towards her. Dew remembered another hospital, a day six years earlier, the day Jerome was born. He remembered sitting in the waiting room with Malcolm, who'd been so nervous he'd thrown up, twice. He remembered talking to Shamika just hours after the delivery. He kept walking toward her. She started shaking her head side to side, clutching Jerome tighter. She mumbled warbling words that couldn't be understood, yet their meaning rang clear. Dew wished he were anywhere else but facing this crying woman, the wife of his friend, his partner, the man he'd failed to protect. He fought back tears of his own, an empty sorrow rolling in his chest alongside the burning hatred and rage. The only thing that kept him strong was the knowledge he'd find out who was responsible. And when he did, oh, daddy, daddy oh, the fun that he would have. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.